Okay, everyone, we're heading into get day one to land now. Um, when uh, Sam sent me the briefing for the, uh, the conference, he based it around some verses in Timothy. I've got a nice briefing. And uh, it comes from the words in Timothy where Paul is essentially uh, coming to the end of his life and um, he's feeling a, bit, a little bit melancholic, I suppose, a little bit reflective. And he, he, he starts also maybe a little bit negative. Preach the word, it says in Timothy 4, verse 2, be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort, with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth, and will turn aside to myths. But you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the course, and I've kept the faith. It'd be amazing to be able to say that ourselves one day, when you're looking back, and we'll come on to that in a minute. But the point is this, first off, just by way of introduction to this. If there's a fight, it means there's an enemy. That's you, unless you're fighting yourself, which is never a good idea. But if there's a fight, by definition, there's an enemy. And a mate of mine recently went for vicar selection uh, and uh, went in front of uh, the advisory stuff that you have to do. And obviously that's going to be a mixed bag because the Church of England is a, is a, is a mixed, it's a broad church, right? It's a broad church from HDB spectrum to liberal spectrum. It's just a thing. So you never know what's going to happen in the interview, but... He was asked about his position on evangelism and stuff, and he made some comment about shining light into darkness and uh, or words to that effect. And the, the senior clergy person who was interviewing him said, hold on a minute, do you actually mean to say you believe that there's darkness? And my mate said, uh, yeah, I do. And he said, and who is behind this apparent darkness? And he sort of thought for a moment, and he went, um, Satan? <laughs> and and uh, the person interviewing said, <laughs> you actually believe that myth? And he went, uh, thinking probably he's in now sort of a bit of a Monty Python sketch. Um, yeah, I do actually. And he went, Really, you know, you believe that fairy tale, and 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 he knew then at that moment that despite the previous day of excellent interviews, the whole process had now gone south because he was an adult man who apparently believed in the fairy tale of Satan. True story. That is not a preacher made up parable. That actually happened, and perhaps I reflected on that conversation. Because uh, let me put this out there right now. I do believe we have a personal enemy called Satan. I do. And I do believe we're involved in the fight. I'm going to unpack that a little bit. Uh, perhaps one of the best things that the enemy has done, our enemy, is get us to stop thinking it even exists. 
we have lost sight of the battle completely. So even to the point where we can do lots of good stuff in the name of Christ, but not even understand the spiritual implications of that stuff. Prayer becomes routine. Worship becomes tick in a box. Our personal devotional life just becomes a thing we have to do because we got told when we were kids to have a quiet time. When you feel guilty if you don't have it. And we forget that actually we're engaged in a massive titanic battle that is actually more brutal than any human war or battle that's ever been fought. Because the battle that we're engaged in and the war we're fighting in is for the salvation of millions and millions of people all over the world who, if we do not reach, face, according to what I believe from the book, a lost eternity. It is a brutal, horrific battle. And perhaps the best thing the enemy's done is get us to forget about his existence or the tactics that he employs against us. And I don't know about you, but I'm a little bit old school, actually. A little bit retro. And I think if you're going to have a fight, a good idea is to learn the tactics of your enemy. I mean, understand, don't get obsessive about it and finding demons behind every bush and everything's a bit weird. I mean, I once had someone come in to see me for a meeting when I lived in Somerset who pointed out a cat, a wooden cat that I bought when I first got married because my wife likes cats. She likes wooden cats. And she went, oh, oh, there's a, there's a, like a, a Persian demon in your wooden cat. And I went, it was made in Romford, sweetheart. I don't know, you know, how does that, you know, it's just gone, that's stupid. I'm not, I'm not talking about that. It actually was, it was made in a factory on the borders of Dagenham. Uh, so that is not, that is not a thing. What the enemy's done is numb and blunt our attention to the real fight and the tactics that he employs. I want to blow that open a little bit in the final session because we are engaged in a war. If you're in Eden, you're really engaged in a war. And I, uh, I tell you, my Bible says this, 1 Peter 5, verse 8. I've got a bit of an old school translation here, but it does come out quite majestic. Be of sober spirit, be on alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Most people read that and stop there, but then it says this, but resist him. Firm in your faith. Raise this question. How do we stay firm in your faith? Knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Perhaps one of his great tactics is to make you think when you're under trial that you are on your own. To isolate you. That's why I think it's such a key tactic of the enemy is an aside. It's to knock you out of church. Get fed up with Christians bumping their gums about things and being annoying. And getting excited about wrong stuff. Or they don't see things the way you see it. So you drop out of church. Someone very wise once said that uh, being in Christian community is like a whole like squad of porcupines on an iceberg. And when you, you need to huddle together to get warm. And then as soon as you draw close, you prick each other in the face. And you have to spring apart again. Because <laughs> it's true, isn't it? The more you get to know people, the weirder they seem. Isn't that true? We're all weird. I mean, apparently I'm weird, according to my wife, and she's got to know me a lot over the last 23 years. Uh, 27 years, actually, we've been together. Uh, 27, we've been going out. 23 married. Boy to man. Um, the, more you, the more you get to know people, the weirder everyone seems, but that's the tactic of the enemy. 
and kill our patience. It says this, but after you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. If you hang in there, if you hold tight to the word, you hold tight to your faith, it's all part of the process. God will establish you. But the Bible is clear. Your enemy is prowling around. The Bible is clear. There is suffering. And there are tough times. You don't have to be in any form of ministry for more than 32 minutes to know that it's going to get a little bit awkward sometimes and tough. And if you're in any form of ministry, you'll have days where you wake up or you're having your first cough and you think, oh, it'd be so good to be a long-distance lorry driver. I'd love to be a postman. Oh, just a simple life. Well, I don't have to talk to anyone. Or engage with the world for whom Christ died. You don't have to be involved in ministry for very long to have these thoughts. I think I'll buy some big shutters and blinds and black out the world. You ever felt like that? Or is that just me? It's a tactic of the enemy. It's all so realistic. I think it's okay to feel sorry for yourself for 32 seconds once a day. No more than that and it gets sin. That's sin after that. It means that there may be trials. It means we have to hold the line. Otherwise, we can't, be, we can't be perfected or established. But you will in the end. If you want a quiet life, I've come to this conclusion after 23 years of serving the Lord full on. If you want a quiet life, don't try to change anything. Don't, don't try and tackle any ill or problem. Don't confront anything. Did you have a quiet life? Don't, don't do that. Don't invest your life in trying to reach the poor. Don't do it if you want a quiet life. If you want a life of a little bit of daytime telly and a fondant fancy every now and again, and a cup of tea and everything is good with the world, don't try and change anything. And, and certainly... Do not proclaim Christ if you want a quiet life. But if you want to live the roller coaster that is the gospel of Jesus Christ and you want to establish kingdom stuff, which is a deeply theological term for stuff, like Eden and things, if you seek to demolish enemy strongholds, if you want to shine light and be radically loving and proclaim Christ, Get ready. Get ready. Because I, I wrote a list of what this is meant for me since I was 22 and I started taking the gospel very, very seriously. The minute I've stepped up or stepped out, I've faced more temptation in my private life and publicly. Uh, not just sexual temptation of all kinds. There are thoughts that I don't even know where they come from. They're even outside my normal thinking patterns. I think, why am I thinking that? Not, not, not just the temptations you think I'm talking about. Temptations to be angry at people. Or to get all chippy and weird. Or to get defensive or insecure or fall out or isolate myself. Or to pursue materialism rather than the call of the kingdom and 
Offers get dangled in front of you. Do you know what I was once offered a job? I was going through Baptist minister selection. I'm not a Baptist minister anymore, but I was for a number of years. And I was, I was, I was going through the selection process, and one, one bloke took me aside, a headhunter, in his Armani suit, and he said, he said, son, you're a talented salesman. I will make you a millionaire by the time you're 30. But I want your soul. He actually said that. I want your soul. He said, I'll put 100 grand a year, give you a beamer. He said, bleed for this company and you'll be a millionaire by the time you're 30. I was in my early 20s. What he didn't know was the following week I was going to Ipswich to be interviewed by the Ministerial Recognition Committee of the Eastern Association of the Baptist Union of Great Britain. And I went into a smelly room that stunk vaguely of, like, urine. It did, actually. This old wooden floor and, and church green walls. And the first thing was, young man, please stand up and read from Colossians 1. That was a preaching test. <laughs> Can he actually read? <laughs> and the second, he was. Then he said, oh, give me three theologists and a book of Romans. I'm like, ooh. <laughs> and then we went for a whole bunch of other stuff. And then they phoned me and they said, you're in. You know, you, you're past. I remember thinking, I've got to make a phone call. 100 grand a year. Millionaire. Smelly urinals. Pursue the things of the kingdom. And obviously, you know what way I jump, because I'm here now. But the temptations come. I face more antagonism. More friendly fire. Friendly fire. You know, I, I often say to people, it's just Reality. I found as an evangelist that mostly people who are not yet followers of Jesus Christ have been absolutely fascinated by the things I have to say. I've never had a problem with anyone saying I'm weird. Honestly. Well, not, not from outside the church. I've never had that problem. I've mostly found that people who are not engaged with things of Christ, you might get a bit shirty. Some might get a bit aggravated for a bit, but they soon calm down after a pork pie and a beer. I mean, you can break through in the end. But most persistent antagonism has come from my own side. And what does that make you feel like when you're misunderstood or ignored or passed over or someone says something or you read an article somewhere or a review of something you try to do and it's all horrible? What does it make you do? It's an enemy tactic. Do you know what it does? It puts your finger on the quit button. I want to quit. Give in. Stuff it. I'll go and sell double glazing. Give up this stupid church planting stuff. That's what happens straight away. More potential division and more pressure to stay off the path because the tactics that the enemy employs against us, I believe, are guerrilla warfare tactics. And it's the thing that presses the buttons of the heart. And we need to be wary of that. We need to understand how to fight it. There'll be times when you're forming new teams. Or trying to start something new when the division and the tension can be so acute you wonder why you even started in the first place. Do you know, most church plants, ministries, teams, most of the failure time is in the first 18 to 24 months. Did you know that? Because it's at that point the enemy tries to kill it. We've often said it here, I've heard it said by Andy, the enemy often kills stuff right at the start. Before it even gets going, he'll try to kill it. He's done it all through scripture. You see his tactic. People fall out of each other and there's strife. 
I remember when I took over the church years ago, and uh, we had planted on an estate, and then I became senior pastor, and we were planting out congregations, we formed a team, and we were on this rapid growth trajectory. Honestly, it was like it was like being on an express train. I'd never experienced anything like it. It's salvations and healings, and people were getting delivered of demons, and we baptized 96 people in the first year of forming this new team. And it was all really, I mean, it was really like explosive stuff. And then one day, one of my colleagues didn't turn up to lead communion. And cut a long story short, uh, I said to another quote, to a team of four of us by this time, I said, oh, where's, what's his face? Let's call him Steve. Where's Steve? And uh, he said, oh, uh, I'll talk to you after communion. You need to lead communion. So I led the communion. I said, afterwards, what's the problem? He said, oh, he's got a beef against you and you've got to have a meeting tomorrow. And I said, what? Oh, he said, he just, he's heard you've said all kinds of stuff about him. And I said, I haven't said anything about him. You know, and he, so I, he says, you have, and we've got to meet the elders tomorrow. Uh, can you, you know, we're hoping for like six o'clock when they've all finished work and it's at this house, one of the oldest houses. And you, I went, oh, gosh, you know. I mean, obviously, I'm compressing a thing here. And I spent the next day feeling a little bit stressed about that meeting, if I'm honest with you. I could just sense the pressure of it, you know. And you, Anyway, I, I went round to the house and evidently they'd all met at five because I was last there. And uh, they were all sitting... <laughs> I'm like, I'm the senior pastor of the church, you know. And uh, they're all sitting there in a, in a circle in this living room. And the only seat that was left was a tiny little stool. <laughs> so they're all, <laughs> they're all sitting in on these chairs in a circle and there's a tiny little stool. So, you know, I mean, I'm not a small fella. So I'm, I'm sort of like perched on this little stool and they're all sitting above me. And then the person who had all these complaints was sitting there with a clipboard. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> of like allegations and it's just horrendous and um, what's all this about but I had a secret weapon I had a secret defense system called Karen Beach my wife because as I left the house uh, and Karen is a woman of few words uh, she's a very gentle person and uh, few words but when she does speak it kind of has significance you know and she called me over and she gave me a little kiss on the cheek and she said, now, Karen grew up in church. I didn't. So, you know, I don't know kids' songs from church or Sunday school things. But she starts singing me this song, uh, which goes something like, I mean, I can't remember the full version. She goes, you need to remember this little song that we used to do in Sunday school. I said, what is it? She goes, with Jesus in the vessel, you can smile at the storm. Smile at the storm. Right, and she sings this song, Jesus in the vessel, you can smile at the storm. And it's going, oh, she's going over and over and over with it. And I'm like, all right, love. So she sings this song. So anyway, I go to this meeting, and, and Mr. Clipboard produces Clipboard. And um, I'm now, I'm in this weird, like, Holy Spirit moment. Because I'm hearing, like, I'm hearing, like, in the background, the voice is like, and then you said this, and then you said that, and you said me, and then you did this, and this person said that. And it was all hearsay. And that is always the complaining voice, isn't it? Everyone's voice no complaints goes, <laughs> that's what happens. So, and then you said this to Steve, and Steve said that to Helen, and Helen said that you said this about Steve, and I'm like, oh. But in the background, I've got, Jesus in the vessel, you can smile at the storm. So and it's going round and round and round and round in my head. And I knew the peace of Christ, you know? Like, it was unbelievable. Like, and one of the things that's kept me going through the years is my own personal walk and worship life with the Lord. I may not look like a worshiper to you. I may not behave like one outwardly, but I am. Got me Bethel worship, me hill song, and you know, I've got me Bible readings and me CDs and me MP3s and all that stuff all kicking off in my car and sometimes on my motorbike. I found myself speeding to Bethel. <laughs> and that is a bit 
That's, I've got to examine that theologically. But it's kept me going. It's the truth. Let me find you these, these amazing, amazing verses uh, from uh, uh, Timothy. Let me dig them out. I can't, I can't juggle so many uh, pages and things. If you've got your Bibles with you, go to uh, 2 uh, Timothy. Oh dear, where are we going here? Go back. Timothy, Timothy. Oh, God, this Bible's too big. Can't find it. Can someone, can you, someone, dig, have you got it in front of you? Can you dig me out? I've got me, lost me place or anything. Uh, here we go. Oh, here we go. There we go. I had me thinking the wrong place. Here we go. Look at this in 2 Timothy. Uh, and we'll take it from uh, 4 verse 14. This is, this, is, this is Paul talking again about this opposition. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. Then he says, the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. It, it, I mean, you can read it either way. Like, he's either bitter and chippy, and like he's hoping he gets it in the, in the neck from the Lord. But, but and that's possible, um, which does cut across much of our teaching around the Beatitudes. But um, there is another sense in which he could be saying, I'm giving it to heaven. I mean, I know he's a, he's a sinful man. He's Alexander the coppersmith, so I give it to heaven. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to take this upon myself. Give it to heaven. It's a great strategy. Give it to heaven. Say it. I'll give it to heaven. Just say it to people. I'm giving that to heaven. They'll look really unnerved, especially if they're out of order. Be on your guard against him yourself. We vigorously opposed our teaching. At my first defense, no one supported me. Everyone deserted me. That's what I'm saying, isn't it? There was conflict. Everyone deserted me. May it not be counted against them, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that through, through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and, and that all the Gentiles might hear and I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. You may go through trials. You might try and plant an Eden team and go through opposition, but God will rescue you. You may suffer a little while, but God will prove you and he will establish you. That's what he's saying. I was in this meeting with Mr. Mee Mee with my clipboard <laughs> and halfway through the long, very long list, someone stood up at one of the elders and, and he said, oh, I've had enough of this farce. This is completely ridiculous. None of this stuff is true. And, uh, and it turned out that someone had been, you know, like almost like an enemy plant actually had been sowing all kinds of lies and dissension and stuff. And it, it got, it unraveled very quickly because some of it was so spurious. I can't go into the detail because it's too boring. But anyway, he stood up, he stood up, this, the guy who had been, me, 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 and his voice changed to a normal one. And then he went, he said, oh, he said, I need to fall on my sword. I've got to resign. He said, I've stood against you and I've undermined you and I've spoken out against you and I've spoken behind your back. And I know from the Lord, this is, I've been a sinful man. Literally, it's like that. He said, I'm going to fall on my sword and I'm going to quit my ministry. And I mean, mate, ain't the seven samurai. We're a Baptist church. <laughs> Isn't it? No, it's a local Baptist church. Come on, let's stop being dramatic. Come here, give us a hug. So he, we had a hug. And then I went, I'm giving it to heaven, you sinful, what's it? No, I didn't. 
It's how we fight back. That's the enemy tactic to divide. And how do we fight back? You're an Eden team leader. You model grace. And you model calm. And you model the opposite spirit. You don't go the way the enemy wants you. You repent of bitterness and anger and being all twisted up inside and all gnarled up. You're working in these tough communities. The enemy will employ that against your heart. I absolutely guarantee you. We don't talk about that stuff enough. And if you're a team member, do you know what you do? You model grace and you model calm and you model the opposite spirit and we honour one another and we journey together and we overcome our difficulties and we one of the things that I'm really a firm believer in in leadership is that I, I called it the last 10%. That thing that no one wants to talk about. You know, the thing that is really awkward. Well, let's just say it and get the rubbish off the floor. We say it in love and we deal with it and we keep the atmosphere clear because the enemy will use it if we don't. There is a spiritual war and the Bible is absolutely clear on this if you go to Daniel 10 you'll see this outstanding window into spiritual warfare where Daniel had been fasting and mourning for three weeks it says verse three I didn't eat any tasty food nor did meat or wine enter my mouth nor did I use any ointment at all until the entire three weeks were completed it's a smelly hungry man on the 24th day of the first month while I was by the bank of the great river that is the Tigris I lifted my eyes and looked to behold there was a certain man dressed in linen whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold of upfaz his body was like beryl his face had the appearance of lightning his eyes were like flaming torches his arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze and the sound of his words like the sound of a tumult now I Daniel alone saw the vision while the men who were with me didn't see the vision nevertheless a great dread fell on them and they ran away to hide themselves a great dread fell on them when the angel of the Lord appeared so I was left alone and saw this great vision it had no strength no strength was left in me for my natural colour turned to a deathly pallor and I retained no strength. But I heard the sound of his words and as soon as I heard the sound of his words I fell into a deep sleep on my face with my face to the ground. That's what you do when the Lord turns up. One of his mighty angels appears before you. Your face plant. What else can you do? Bow God. Holiness of God and his angel appears before you. What else do you do? Then behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. He said to me, oh, Daniel, man of high esteem, understand the words I'm about to tell you and stand upright, for I've now been sent to you. And when he had spoken his words to me, I stopped trembling. Then he said to me, do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard and I've come in response to your words. But the prince of the Persian kingdom was withstanding me for 21 days. And behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me for I've been left there with the kings of Persia. Now I've come to give you an understanding of what will happen to you in the latter days. Paraphrasing it, Essex style, it's like this. We heard you praying, but this massive war kicked off in heavenly places. So I got a bit held up. I was fighting my way through like demonic forces. Because that's what the Prince of Persia was, a, was like, a, a, I suppose, a demonic force, demonic entity. And it says, but then the Archangel Michael came and we had a massive punch up. And now it's cool. And here I am. Well, that is a massive window in what happens when we pray. When you try and roll back darkness, when you engage in a spiritual battle, either 
you don't believe that myth, do you? Well, this is real. And we've lost sight of it. I came across this brilliant, this brilliant article. There's a film coming out soon about Dunkirk, the evacuation of the British Expeditionary Force from France. For those of you who don't know your military history, there are about 30 to 40,000 soldiers have gone over to France to fight Hitler, and uh, they didn't do so well. And Hitler has launched this lightning counterattack, and it was all going horribly wrong. And they thought, uh, and in fact, the German High Command issued a, uh, an edict saying the British Army is encircled and our troops are proceeding to its complete annihilation. It was actually a radio transmission that was sent by the German forces. But Britain had a godly king. And he says this, Seeing the situation developing, His Majesty King George VI requested that Sunday 26th of May should be observed as a national day of prayer. In a stirring broadcast, he called the people of Britain and the Empire to commit their cause to God. Together with members of the cabinet, the king attended Westminster Abbey while millions of his subjects in all parts of the Commonwealth and Empire flocked to churches to join in prayer. Britain was given inspiring godly leadership and her people responded immediately. The whole nation was at prayer that Sunday. The scene outside Westminster Abbey was remarkable. Photographs show long, long queues of people outside churches that couldn't get in. So much so that the following morning, the Daily Sketch exclaimed, nothing like this has ever happened before in our nation. And it says, very soon, three miracles happened. And this is quite astonishing. I'm not, I'm not doing a big thing on war here, and you can take all kinds of views on this, but I'm just going to read you the facts. The first was, for some reason that's never been explained, Hitler overruled his generals and halted the advance of his armoured columns at the very point where they could have completely annihilated the British army. They were only 10 miles away, and he told them to stop going any further and to hand everything over to his air force. That was the first miracle. The second miracle was this. A storm of unprecedented fury broke out over Flanders on Tuesday the 28th of May, grounding almost the entire German air force that was available to attack the British army, who are now eight miles from Dunkirk. In fact, the storm was so violent um, that it's reported that no one had ever seen a storm of that fury ever before at that point in history in Europe. And then there is the third miracle. While the storm was raging over Flanders, eight miles from Dunkirk and all across that region, it says a great calm, such as rarely or ever been experienced, settled over the English Channel. It, they said it was flat like a mill pond that enabled thousands of little boats to row across the English Channel and rescue nearly all of the soldiers. Also, reports from the battlefield, many of the troops on the beaches were favoured with a strange immunity, it says, when 400 men were being systematically bombed and machine-gunned by 60 enemy aircraft. After the strafing was over, they were amazed to find there was not one casualty amongst them. as historical record. Another man, a chaplain, was likewise machine-gunned and bombed as he lay on the beach. After what seemed like a long attack, he realised he'd not been hit, rose to his feet, and with sand all around where he had been, he was covered in sand, he found that there were a load of pitted bullet holes in the shape of his figure. 
mic drop moment. That is absolutely astonishing. That's historical record. When we pray, stuff happens. I told a story on Tuesday morning in prayers, which I wrestled over this morning, whether to say again, but I will give you the brief version. A few years ago now, maybe 12, 13 years ago, a friend of mine phoned me to say, my wife is giving birth, she has to have a cesarean, but the placenta is attached to a main vein. And we are calling people to pray, because the doctors have said it's very, very serious. So we called a whole bunch of people to pray all over the country, and our church engaged in prayer. On the day of the delivery, we were all praying. We'd met to pray in the morning, and people were fasting and praying. We took it very seriously. It was a very serious situation. She could die. Um, I got a phone call from my friend who said, it's as bad as it gets. Uh, please come to the hospital. It's all gone horribly wrong. You need to come now. And please bring some change to the payphone. This is before mobile phones got really common, okay? There used to be phones with holes in for money. And, and they said, so bring some, bring some coinage. Uh, it was raining. I only had a motorbike. I got my wet weather gear on and I rode to the hospital, which was some miles away. Uh, it took me an hour in total. I parked up my motorbike. I tried to get, it was a specialist maternity hospital. I couldn't get in because I didn't have a chaplaincy pass. I didn't know the code. Eventually, someone came. We're now some time on. And I walked in in my wet motorcycle gear to turn the corner in the foyer. And I saw my mate say goodbye, put the phone down. And then saw me, stopped in his tracks and said, come with me. We went upstairs. We went into a delivery room. They were upstairs on the first floor. We went into a delivery room. I'm still in my motorcycle gear. Uh, and my friend's wife was laying naked on a delivery bed and there were two medics pressing down on her abdomen and the consultant took me aside and said, um, she has drained the blood bank, uh, we've run out of clotting agents, do you do the last rites? And I said, you don't know what that is, didn't learn that at Baptist Bible College, see, do you do the last rites? So I said, we'll pray. It's an incredibly tense moment. I'm standing there now holding my mate's hand. And I'm, to be honest with you, I'm like every charismatic bone in my body is now on display. So I'm praying in tongues. <laughs> like in front of these medics. And there's a big crowd of medics saying, I'm praying in the spirit. And I'm, I'm like, oh, come on, God. And my mate's just sobbing. And um, he sort of moves away from me to walk. He can't face it. And then it's very dramatic. It's like I never had a casualty. Two policemen come in carrying boxes of blood, which I was later to find out were the last two boxes of blood of her type in the, in the blood bank. Uh, we continued to pray, and then I was led out of the room, and we sat in a little room next to that room. It was a horrible, horrible time. Every time someone's feet passed the door, you know, you look through the crack, I thought they were going to come in and tell us that she had died. It was absolutely horrendous. Uh, but after some time, the consultant comes in, and we were still praying together, and he said, well, miraculously, because we don't have clotting agents, she's... Uh, uh, she uh, stopped bleeding and uh, we think we've cut off the source of the bleed we think we've repaired the vein and uh, baby's okay she's, she's okay we're going to try and move her to intensive care which is another hospital across the town uh, so we then pray please God if there's anything else please find it and then he came in about 20 minutes later and said it's funny we were just going to put it in the ambulance we found another source of bleeding 
we've tied that off to. We're going to move her now to intensive care. She's going to be fine. She's going to be fine. It's drama over. She's going to pull through. It's going to be okay. So anyway, so we've got some blood coming in from another blood bank. It's going to be all right. Everything's going to be okay. So we sat there and prayed with relief. We wept together and we prayed and we said, dear God, please let us talk to her before midnight tonight. And then we went to Burger King. And we had a bacon double cheeseburger and a Diet Coke. I think he had a Whopper, if I can remember rightly. And we sat there talking. And then we went to the hospital a bit later. And as we, we scrubbed up, we went into intensive care. We put the doofle on, the apron and a face mask and put the gel on and everything. We walked in. And as we walked in, she opened her eyes. She looked at her husband. She went, oh, I really fancy a cup of tea. And then fell back to sleep. It was a beautiful moment. So she spoke to us before midnight. And then we walked out of the room and then he said something to me, he went like this. Now, I'm just going to leave it with you. He went, I need to talk to you about something that's been troubling me all day. And I said, what is it? He said, well, um, how did you know to come to the hospital? That's where you phoned me. But how did you know to come to the hospital now, that time? I mean, where you phoned me? He said, no, it doesn't make sense. He said, because when I said goodbye to you and I, and I, and I put the phone down, you walked in. what he said no 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 I said I said goodbye and you walked in how did you know I went no it took me over an hour mate he said no 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 you you came in I went no I said no I I, I heard you and you phoned me and I came and he said, he said well I, no, I don't get it so, cause I, 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 it was you I was saying goodbye to when you walked in now I those who know me will know that integrity is important to me and I check things out before I share stories. And that's, that's as it happened, pretty much paraphrasing some conversation. Now, either he was suffering from trauma or God stopped the sun in the sky or did something. And I don't know what it is, but I conclude from that that prayer works and walking with Jesus works. And when we call out to God, things change and life comes and transformation happens and people are rescued when we engage in the fight as Jesus calls us to engage in the fight and as the Bible is exalts us to stuff changes so why do we not because our enemy the devil wants to numb and blunt us and the other thing that struck me as I finish in this was in 2 Timothy 4 7 when, when Paul is asked when he's saying his end of his thing he's doing his thing and he's saying it's you know I'm and my time is done. And do you know what? He could have said anything. He could have said, I've planted all the best churches. And I've, oh, do you know, the world's going to talk about me for years. And I've written half the New Testament. Check me out. I'm the man. You know, we got, oh, I've preached at this festival and that thing. And I've written a few books. He doesn't. He could have said anything. He said, I fought a good fight. I run the race and I glorify Christ through my life. That's what he said and that's his legacy. He left his ego at the door. The things that the enemy will use against us, he's not knowing he's there. Numbing and blunting our engagement in the fight. Stopping us from praying and being devoted and having the opposite spirit and getting us all chippy and weird and agitated. 
and inflating our egos so we forget that actually Jesus is the founder of everything we do and he's the man. And if people see anything good in us, we say, the only thing good in me is because there is one who is far greater than me doing all this stuff and his name's Jesus Christ. And as we do that and as we proclaim him, you will change your communities and the darkness will roll back and light will shine. And that's the true fight. The fight is seeing thousands of Emma stories of radical transformation and what we need to raise up, the pounds, the prayer, the people to get the job done. And we walk holy lives before the Lord until the day he calls us home. And then when we finally get home, I'll be like, oh, Sam. Yeah, he looks a lot better than he does now. <laughs> I think, I seem to think that we did some stuff together. And he'll be like, we woke up from a dream because we'll be really alive. You up for that? Yeah. Let's stand together and we'll worship. Let's, let's give our hearts to God. And let me say this to you. If you are sitting here through that talk and you're thinking, oh, I've not prayed hard enough. I'm not reading my Bible. Do you know what? I've been chippy and weird and I've, I've, I've let things get in the way. And the end, I've seen where the enemy's trying to destroy my team and I've taken my eyes off the battle and all of that stuff. Do you know what you can do? Change that right now. Don't need to be a big moment. You just say, that will no longer be. And you, you resolve to put one foot in front of the other and stay on a narrow path, follow Christ and create kingdom carnage. That's what we want, isn't it? We demolish strongholds, we take out enemy generals, we create kingdom carnage and rescue as many people as we can until the day God calls us home. Amen.